Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody, and welcome back. Today, I'm talking to one of the most important people in blockchain that you may never have heard of. He's responsible for advising protocols, exchanges, consortia, and enterprises on tax matters, and is the global tax leader for blockchain and cryptocurrency at Deloitte. Rob Massey, welcome to the show. Thanks, Anthony. Nice intro and nice to be here. As a bit of background, I've spent the last seven years advising various segments of the ecosystem on tax matters. And what a pleasure to get involved with entrepreneurs at an early stage of development. We support literally token issuances and network launches, as well as you know investors directly or through funds. Um, we look at uh, enterprise applications. Um, we look at a lot of infrastructure players like exchanges and, and mining. And importantly, we engage a lot with different regulators around the world. Importantly for me is the IRS seeking guidance and clarity through uh, private letter rulings, et cetera, to gain clarity where our clients need it. So thanks for having me. That's my pleasure. And I'm really excited for today's episode. And just in that introduction there, you get to see some of the stuff that most people don't get to hear about that big four companies like Deloitte are actually working with token issuances, exchanges, some of the fundamentals of public blockchain that maybe gets less coverage in the press. So I hope we cover a good amount of that today. And one of the standout issues around public blockchains, ICOs, exchanges in recent times seems to have been around the financial reporting, tax structuring, and interventions of regulators like the SEC or the IRS. Could you summarize those issues for us? And how are these startups thinking about it from the off? It's a great question, Anthony. Um, the headlines do get taken up um, more often probably by the SEC. Safe to say all regulatory bodies are uh, watching the space, not just here in the US, but around the world. And the SEC headlines are meaningful as a warning shot saying, hey, you, know, you all need to engage in this space correctly. And it's good that they're engaged. In our client base, what, what we tend to find are entrepreneurs that want to do the right thing and exercise a level of care. And that means that they are engaging with us and their counsel to go proactively, having their counsel represent them in terms of the regulators, importantly the SEC, to have a dialogue and design a path forward that is compliant as they iterate with their business models in a way that's compliant for broader regulatory reasons, they engage with me from a tax perspective to say, okay, as this model changes, as the structure changes, as the model changes, as we consider different you know, stakeholders and, and we design the commercialization of our idea, how do we layer on tax? And that means that we iterate a lot you know, important that these innovators are listening to how to stay in bounds. And that means they're gonna iterate through a lot of different techniques, a lot of different models. And that means that we are agile in tax because we don't, you know, we have some guidance. We reach back to age old case law and draw analogies in places where there are not guidance. And we iterate with them to, to try and be compliant for tax, just like they're trying to be compliant in response to other regulators. 
I think that's such an interesting way of talking about it, agile in tax. And for those people who are starting out in blockchain, you could imagine that the technical challenges or establishing tokens or the protocols or the user experience were some of the things taking up people's time. Whereas as a matter of fact, what you're doing is you're proactively engaging with regulators and startups around technology or token structures that are still relatively new to world. When people are, are navigating, and, and, and primarily it's securities laws that are the driver, important for these folks to understand that just because they may you know, classify something as a security for a particular regulatory body, that doesn't necessarily bear weight with the tax lens. And so we have to go through our own analysis to say, okay, you know, is, is it a type of security for tax? If we're answering the question, what's the thing, as I like to say, as we're designing, you know, what is the digital asset represent? Even if it's a security for a particular regulatory body, we have to answer the question, is a security for tax or what kind of a security is it? Is it a digitized piece of equity or is it a debt instrument or is it a derivative of some type? And so that, that collaboration between tax and, and, and counsel is key uh, as we iterate toward the, the business model. Got you. And I do I do love the what is the thing definition. Let's get into some of the things to start us off, because I think it'll be helpful to provide context. We've seen a proliferation of different digital asset types, both used in public protocols, in ICOs, and now in enterprise. And I know the Deloitte survey 2020 came out yesterday, I believe, uh, and yes. some really interesting stats in and around digital assets. Help us break down the different types. And what are the considerations from a tax perspective? It's so exciting to get another survey out. And as, as everybody can read, the important statistic that I latch onto is that 89% of those surveyed think that digital assets is either important, very important, or somewhat important to their industries in the next three years. This is a big increase um, that we've seen in the level of engagement with digital assets. And I like the word proliferation. I've been using that word for a while. It's a little bit shocking, which is appropriate in this space. The fact that we have a something that is, you know, sometimes feels like fiat currency, but in most cases is not, but is enabling new forms of commerce that is being embraced by all industries in four corners of the globe. Super exciting stuff. And know that not all digital assets are created equal. We have, and, and, and not, not for me to create a taxonomy of digital assets, but knowing that the changes in how a digital asset interacts with different stakeholders, the concept of a programmable fund, what it does, what are its capabilities, this drives what we would call it from a tax perspective. And again, what we would call it, what's the thing as we define it, it actually changes even based on the jurisdiction. We talked for a minute about security tokens a little bit, and, and I referenced the fact that you know some may be, in fact, a security as defined by tax. And by the way, there are different definitions of security with the tax lens, but having digitized equity versus debt versus a derivative, those all have different tax consequences, both to the issuer and to the holder in terms of revenue recognition and tax accounting methods. Quite a lot of activity there. Um, relatively recent, I'd say, and, and as people are engaging more with the regulators, that's, um, that's becoming more, more common as a, as a path. Stablecoin really being thrown around a lot and folks you know, using that for, for various purposes, knowing that not all stablecoins are created equal. We have some stablecoins which truly are digital representations of fiat currency. There are others that are designed in a way to track 
toward the same value of a particular currency, but aren't exactly digital representations of fiat currency. Some are, you know, driven by autonomous protocols, almost like virtual monetary authorities, right? That institute, you know, buy and sell side transactions to keep things stable. And so those are all treated differently, again, for tax, both to the issuer and the holder. I find it fascinating how we're getting in a world where people are digitizing everything, including physical assets. So providing, if, if, you, if you provide digital representations of things that are, are less liquid, like fractions of real estate, right? Digital representations of a fraction of a building allowing liquidity in an area we didn't have it. A lot of our, our real estate clients are thinking about that. We are seeing digital representations of gold and diamonds. And, and opening up markets and, and, and tradability of these assets, using them as leverage in places that they weren't easily leveraged before. And believe it or not, still a lot of, I know utility token isn't the, the, the normal phrase anymore, but tokens that are you know, developed on Ethereum or, or another network that are designed to provide some element of utility to an application. And, and interacting with that native application, such as to interact with a smart contract, providing you know, real-time remuneration in terms of revenue splits, making sure that as you know, different parties have rights to the IP as it's used, if the IP is accessed via a utility type token, then that token can split and remunerate the right parties on a real-time basis. So still a lot of uses coming around. We see new examples every day. Uh, important to keep these different types of, of digital assets in different categories and apply the tax lens uniquely. As we answer the question, what's the thing? Got you. And I'm imagining a game show with you and a number of different crypto tokens being in a sort of like <laughs> three by three box and you get to turn them around and you have to figure out what's the tax requirement one by one. Before we get to that show, and I, and I would love for that one to happen, it's really interesting to hear that the tax requirement is applicable both to the issuer and the holder. And so if, if you're issuing a token or if you're a token-based business, you've obviously got to think a little bit about the user experience or the duty of care you have to your customers to inform them about what they're holding. But based on what you said, not all tokens are property, right? They're not all assets necessarily. Absolutely. One of the evolutions that we're seeing is in you know, large, mature enterprises engaging in you know, blockchain conversations that are quickly saying, gosh, I wonder if there's some form of a digital asset that actually enables us to evolve and engage in different means of commerce. And one of the big questions is, you know, what's the thing? But before you get to what's the thing is, is it a thing at all? And, and that's a, it's a key point when you think about, you know, growing up in a world of loyalty points or rewards points. We don't think about those as property, but clearly those are things that, that we all feel like we have a right to. And so how do you, you get from a world that it feels like a thing, but it's not necessarily considered property with the tax lens? And then all of a sudden, that thing takes on a new life and is transferable easily between organizations and has other rights or aspects of property. That's when things get more interesting. And so you see enterprises wanting to engage in conversations and saying, how do we design this user experience in a test mode? And what are those inflection points that would make it more or less like property? Which again, has implications to the enterprise who's issuing these things and to the holders and their users and their customer base. To your point, they wanna, they wanna be sensitive to them. It's, it's 
you know, enterprise, they're not in the business of giving tax advice to their customers, but they need to be sensitive to it. And so a lot of thought goes into the design of, of what the digital asset is and how it's used and what it's represent. And that way, everybody's eyes wide open. What have we created here? So it's not always that we have to consider a detailed taxation plan for using a token structure for representing a balance, right? Having a checks and balance system or a reconciliation system, say, for example, for intercompany settlement, that's just creating a virtual number. And we're using tokens and smart contracts as a way of doing essentially a virtual abacus. We're not considering the taxation or the regulatory requirements there because it's really just a technical functionality. But when you're starting to explore the different asset types, very different story. So where do you get involved, Rob? And what is the type of analysis or the type of support that you provide? You know, we draw pictures. <laughs> we draw a lot of pictures, Anthony, because you've got technicians coming to the, the virtual table now, right? That are bringing different lenses and backgrounds to the conversation. And so drawing the transaction flows, identifying who are the stakeholders, understanding what are their relationships, and, and stress test how these different flows inform what is the thing that you've created. And that's the most effective way we've done this is through pictures because we all speak slightly different languages. But if you get counsel at the table, you get tax at the table, you get you know, the, the technologists, you get the, the strategy folks in, in the business and you, and you really you design via picture, what are these flows? then you get to you get a feel for you know what do these transactions represent and what does the digital asset represent that's that's how we get it right so showing up early you know it's not often that a, a tax person gets invited uh, to the early stages of a of the party <laughs> but it's uh, it's such a pleasure to be there and we go through a lot of iterations as in the design and you know rarely is tax the driving force but it's an implication that shows up very early stage and people are sensitive to little changes in the business models or how the enterprise will re relate to a stakeholder or a customer. Little changes there does have implications to tax and, and we wanna make sure that that's eyes wide open on the front end. And maybe what we can do is we can illustrate with a few examples. Now I know client confidentiality considered. Can we talk through some of the types of engagement? So you've worked with protocols, with exchanges, with ICOs, obviously alongside regulators, and now with enterprise and consortia. Maybe let's bring this to life with a few examples of what's gone before and where did you get involved? So when you're going to bring to life a digital asset or a network, you know, applying a, a lens to say, you know, how, how is that treated with, from a tax perspective is it's a hard question. And you can get to some really, you know, elaborate designs and ex, uh, explanations, but it's gotta be believable, right? We're, we're inherently dealing in a world that's new. You can't really touch it. You can't really see it. It's represented by, you know, code and, and we develop analogies and stories where we get involved is to, to try and digest and say, you know, what has been designed and going deep into the technology to say, what has actually happened? And so when the types of projects we get involved in is saying, okay, in the steps of a network launch, where's the coding taking place and what does it represent? You know, designing software is, is just that. But the minute that the software application, the network begins to be utilized and influenced by other parties, 
then that is going to feel a little bit like it is operating, you know, outside the organization. And ultimately, you know, the true decentralized network protocols may feel like something separate and distinct from the entity that designed it. But you can't ignore the fact that it started somewhere. There's a set of humans there's a business behind the design. And so where we get involved is saying, okay, what did, what did the enterprise do versus what did, what did the network do? And, and what are those actions? So one of the ways that we get involved in this is in the, in the network launches is understanding, you know, what, how, how is, how's the network being born? Whose network is it? Does it belong to the enterprise at different stages? And if it starts as a network and frequently a set of digital assets that belongs to the enterprise, and then it's out, Right? And there's a delivery of, of property of some kind out of that enterprise. You know, is that taxable to the enterprise? And how does that, how does that, how does that transaction take place? And sometimes that's influenced by legal agreements. A lot of time it's, it's influenced by um, the actions taken and, and what the property represents. But, but all of this with a tax lens, at a very basic level, when you take appreciated property, and, and we assume that digital assets are property of some kind and you take appreciated property and it leaves the control of an enterprise for different reasons. There's a decent chance that that creates gain, right? There's a concept that, you know, appreciated property when it leaves the enterprise is gain between the value of that property when it leaves and, and the basis. And in, in many of these cases, if you just created the property, that basis is zero. So you have to decide, you know, when it leaves the organization, how do you report it? And in what means? Was it sold? Um, was it transferred in exchange for a service? Was it contributed to another organization? And so all those transaction types influence it. Tax implications to the issuer. So we really get involved in tracking what that exchange is in, in different, different ways. So that is a little about you know, how we would support a network launch and, and property. Now, sometimes the property is created outside, once it's outside of the control of the enterprise. And that's a really important distinction. That means that you know, maybe the property never did exist in the enterprise. It was created outside. That means you know, perhaps there's, there's no tax implication as that those digital assets were created, depending upon how maybe the mining application is designed. But those are the those are the messy kind of questions we have to answer that are deep in technology. And remember, Anthony, I'm a bean counter, <laughs> not a technologist. So we get really deeply involved in trying to understand what is happening in a technological sense, and then make sure that we can represent that with the with with the tax lens. The other area we spend our time in a lot, and and this is the other sides. So then you have you know buyers, whether or not they're investors, buyers of digital assets, and then you know, what does that mean in, in their hands and how do they, they track basis and how does one get comfortable that they can choose different approaches if they have different tranches of digital assets and how do you track basis? Do you have to segregate those different tranches? What does segregation mean in terms of digital assets, whether it's, you know, whether it's wallets or accounts, those are the messy questions you get on an investor side to make sure that they're able to monetize their investments in the most tax efficient manner. It was a long answer. <laughs> it was a long one, but a good one. And I'd really like to know, how does this differ when you're talking to individual organizations, individual companies, startups versus a consortium, for example? Does the model change? Does the thing change? Does the structure change? Absolutely. Consortiums are complicated because what you have is many different organizations coming together. And so the first question is, 
How are they coming together? Have they formed an entity themselves? And if yes, what have they formed and where have they formed it? And, and more often than not, I think as consortiums to come together, there's some form of IP that they're creating between them that, that you're going to want for various reasons to have in an entity in some form. So then you say, you need to choose a jurisdiction. You know, where should that jurisdiction be based on the humans and where are they? And, and we look to the, the substance requirements of various jurisdictions as they come alive today. So, you know, choosing a jurisdiction that's natural and then understanding what is the relationship between the consortium and the consortium members. We look at where is the funding coming from to fund the consortium. We look at the various tax rules of the consortium members and if it's if they're affiliated enough with the consortium themselves in terms of an ownership standpoint. Do the actions of the consortium then implicate the members with a tax lens? So really interesting questions as we design um, consortiums. That's before you even get to building something out, whether it's a network protocol or a digital asset. And I'm going to level this up now because this is the forward-looking question. And naturally, this isn't scaled. This isn't something that I think has taken off broadly yet. But from a tax perspective, I think it's really interesting. Decentralized finance. When you look at propositions and platforms like MakerDAO, where you're seeing a virtual entity gathering crypto and issuing lending based on decentralized voting to people in a virtual context that could be stateless, how do we think about tax and regulatory compliance in the DeFi world? Yeah, boy, this is a really hard question. And there's some active debates on that exact topic. I think that the pressure there is that it's very difficult to say that a decentralized entity or organization isn't impacted by some jurisdiction or human, right? It's, it's, it's not possible to detach it from everyone. It's got to come back to, you know, a jurisdictional home or, or sense of attachment. The tax rules are such today that various jurisdictions could assert taxation, even if there's no physical presence of that entity in a particular jurisdiction, even if there's a series of transactions that enough of their residents interact with. There are countries today that would say, ah, we need to be able to tax those transactions and or that organization. It's a really difficult question to say, you know, how would you assert a rule set on an organization which is inherently decentralized? Um, really hard questions, but gets to, you know, informational reporting and, and withholding questions that are yet to be answered. But when, when people are creating these ideas to exercise caution, saying that there's the real possibility that various jurisdictions will look at that organization and say, we, we have a right to tax you because of uh, X, Y, and Z. I would say what is common in our world, right, with tax is to say, gosh, to have a, an organization which isn't attached anywhere, one, it's, it's sort of you know, hard to get your head around these days. So is it easier to pick a center of the universe and to say, gosh, you know, where, where will the human influencers exist? Is there a center of the world that's natural? And, and chances are that's going to be yes, right? You can't, there's always going to be humans involved somewhere. So how do you create a, an organization that fits? And that could be, you know, with a, with a properly architected foundation. It could be as, 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 as an enterprise or, or for-profit or combination of both. Thanks, Rob. And I know it was a slightly unfair question, but I don't think there's anyone else in the world I would rather ask that question to. <laughs> and 
it's it's a genuinely important one. And I think this is where some of the early organizations fell foul. They're saying, well, it's decentralized, it's a protocol, it's digital. I'm stateless, right? I've unplugged. I'm a citizen of no country. I exist in the virtual world. Therefore, my assets are free floating, freely transferable. And you know, I, I am beholden to no one. Whereas in reality, that's not true. Everyone is beholden to somewhere or as a citizen somewhere in the world. And there is always a thing. Um, and I guess that's an important lesson learned is to anchor yourself in the right place. Do the right thing. We had David Sunstabo from IOTA a little while ago, and he said, first thing I wanted to do is find the strictest regulatory regime I could. And I'm going to go set up my protocol as a foundation in Germany because I want to push myself against the hardest possible boundary and see what comes back. And if I can survive there, then I know I can be successful in a decentralized world. It's a decent strategy. And I mean, the, the concept of foundations is a really important one to exercise caution. And in Germany, Switzerland, you know, great examples of very strict regulatory environments. You know, a footfall in a foundation in Germany, Switzerland, quite harmful. A footfall in other jurisdictions in a foundation could be, you know, a little bit of tax, a little bit of a penalty, but you know, you you could survive. The concept of mixing for-profit activities and non-profit activities is quite normal, but there's a spectrum of how that happens, and then every every different jurisdiction looks at that differently. But I think there are a number of people out there that think that you know foundations are easy. Let's just spin one up, and and you know it's on paper, it must be fine, and, and we'll just mark forward. And that is a very dangerous thought. Foundations require a lot of care. We spend quite a bit of time coaching entrepreneurs on. If they're going to set the foundation, how do we get it right? How do you move ideas and, and assets from you know one enterprise to a foundation? What do the actions of the humans look like in each of those places to make sure that you um, that, that you get it right and you adhere to the rules that you're respecting? You know, tax in in the jurisdiction that the protocol is coming from or going to. You're respecting the the governance rules of the foundation, and then just you know. You got to stress test it. I use the word stress test a lot to say, let's really paint the picture. Let's design the transaction flows in a mature state ecosystem. And let's really chart those out and we'll stress test those flows against the choices that are being made in entity type and entity jurisdiction. And that's really the way that you feel good about what you're doing. And as a founder or somebody setting up a protocol, you're virtual, so you can almost sit in any jurisdiction you like. You know, so if I'm looking at where am I setting up my foundation or my token, I'm saying I'm looking for somewhere with good weather, decent food, nice motorcycle roads, and then maybe I'll consider the jurisdiction alongside that. And I'm sure there are a number of different geographical considerations. From a tax perspective, you know, what's the difference between a Bermuda or a Germany or a UK or an Ireland? What are some of the different considerations that you talk to your clients about? We always start with what is going to feel natural, because if you have a entity that is set up because it's the right regulatory environment, but it's somewhere that you don't you don't have any of the of the real management or leaders, that's just going to feel unnatural. It's it's going to it's it's probably not going to work. There's going to be strain in there that that is insurmountable. So we we do really talk a lot about you know the humans and and what are they doing. And the, the substance roles as they're evolving around the world are, are quite meaningful. And at the same time, in a decentralized organization, you're going to have humans in multiple jurisdictions. So you have to say, okay, 
how do we organize actually an entity structure to accommodate where the humans exist and, and make sure that that is understood, you know, correctly. If you have, if you have humans in three places, you know, what are their functions? What are their roles? How does that relate to the mothership and design uh, appropriate entities around each so that it's very clear as to the ability of different jurisdictions to tax the transaction flows, you know, a certain taxation of the gains or even the informational reporting. And what's important to start with is what are the, the treaty relationships, the tax treaty relationships between the jurisdictions that have the humans and also the stakeholders. Because if you have, you know, network participants, be they nodes, be they validators or just users in different places, we need to say, gosh, with these transaction flows that hit the mothership, if that's the one executing the third-party transactions, what does that treaty network look like? And again, you know, informational reporting is a, is a very big deal. Uh, and, and that's not just a U.S. concept. We have, we have global informational reporting standards. So all very relevant. Very good. Thanks for that, Rob. And tax isn't just the only consideration, right? So I wanted just to gather a little bit more of your experience because you're used to working in a fairly multidisciplinary team. Again, on most of these shows, we talk about the tech, we talk about the experience, we talk about the proposition. But what are some of the other hidden considerations, the other competences that you bring and colleagues that you bring to the table that provide an additional perspective, either from an assurance perspective or from a compliance perspective? What are some of the things people forget to think about or that you gently remind people are important things when setting up these sorts of businesses? Absolutely. We would always recommend that you bring in the broader thought base to consider everything on the front end. That doesn't mean that you have to boil the ocean on everything on the front end, but to bring in thoughtful considerations of controls and accounting and the ability for an auditor to audit the transactions of the enterprise or the network protocol or how, how will the enterprise users of the protocol audit what is going on? What is the accounting treatment? So to have you know everybody at the table early just to start bookmarking different thoughts and plant the right seeds and then revisit those with the broader group over time. We found that there are very different considerations in designing you know internal controls around digital assets. Even when you have you know trusted custodians in the mix, um, there's still a lot of controls you want in there. Um, you know the accounting guidance, while it's while it's evolving, and there's some good examples out there. Just a lot of considerations. So um, so we highly recommend a, a broader group at the table. You know, Anthony, one thing that we didn't cover with the geographic considerations is the fact that you know every country has different tax rules, and there's some trends out there. But but some things just to keep in mind. Again, I go heavy with the U.S. lens, but this is a this is a global concept. And knowing that the concept of indirect tax on digital assets is a is a big deal, and you know whether or not a digital asset is more money like or less money like is going to have implications as to you know whether or not it's subject to to VAT or exempt, and that matters you know both in the issuer and users and all enterprise engaged. So some some subtleties in there are important. Also the character is important. So there are jurisdictions in the world that gains on capital assets just, just aren't taxable, right? Or ordinary gains are, capital is not. Uh, there may be a difference in rates. And all of those things um, have broader implications. Um, so character matters a lot. And Rob, stepping back from the technical detail for a moment, 
you've worked with a number of different organizations, consortia, protocols, startups in blockchain. At this point in your career, what do you see are the most valuable or transformative applications of blockchain technology? And what are the ones that you're most passionate to see succeed and scale further? So Anthony, I'm going to talk about, about, about two very different things that are getting me excited these days. Uh, and, and frankly, it's just where I'm spending my time. But a number of financial services companies looking at the incredible transformative value as they're allowing their customers to engage with digital assets. These financial services companies are watching the world evolve to finding digital assets as a store of value. Everybody wants access to those. And so providing access to new financial type assets and products, the complexities to make that real from a, from a custody standpoint, from an informational reporting standpoint, as everything evolves. And as we said, not all digital assets created equal. They all have different considerations when it comes to info reporting and basis tracking and the rest. But to see the pace that new investment types are coming around and watch the financial services companies become wise to the value, they can pivot quickly to enable their customer base to engage with new forms of digital assets safely and in a, with a user interface that, that, that works and you, you, can, you, know, you can do it without being a coder and, and get directly into a network protocol, but you can go to a, you know, your trusted financial institution and invest or ask questions or ask strategy. That is, that is really transformative to the investor base. It's just a lot of evolution in a new asset class that you know, the, the world wants access to, but it's hard. You know, it's very technical. It's frequently misunderstood. So for financial services companies, trusted organizations to engage in the space and bring the access to their customers is awesome. What they're finding is it opens the door to an entirely new customer base, right? They've already got the brand of trust, but then they expand the brand to say, and we can bring access to other super innovative things and you can still trust us. That is what's really uh, transformative, super impactful today. I think that's driving a lot of the activity. So financial services, I think, are um, really a fantastic industry segment to, uh, to watch. The other, going the other direction, I believe that um, IP rights management broadly, it, it's a highly complex topic that nobody has really solved for decades. And that is that, you know, we, we have... IP in different forms, whether they be, you know, song rights or software licenses, you know, just a myriad of, of IP rights that are, that have these very complicated terms around how to use them and who has rights to access that IP. Even if you have the best legal agreements out there, you're still burdened with all of the administration to then remunerate the right parties, if you found the right parties, right? You gotta, you gotta calculate the usage. First, you have to identify the usage. You have to calculate the, the, how that contract will come into play. And then you have to go and remunerate those parties. But when it comes to small usages of that IP, one, the administrative burden, is just not worth it. And two, a lot of times it's never really understood. If you lock the rights to IP down in a blockchain application, and the access to that IP and the people with rights to that IP are governed via smart contract. 
then the access to that IP interacting with a programmable fund, a native token, if you will, that provides real-time remuneration in a very transparent, auditable way back to the parties who have the rights to that IP, that is transformative. And that crosses industries and geographies. Now, what I just described is, is pretty complicated, and I think people are trying to iterate and figure this out. But a number of our clients um, are trying to solve for that very thing. And, and I think that just it just solves so much um, that has been, you know, frankly, there's plenty of abuses that have been around for decades. And, uh, and, and here's a way to solve for it, you know, gracefully. Brilliant. Thanks for that, Rob. And I couldn't agree more. IP is a particularly challenging international, but standards-based and highly digitized space. I see absolutely no reason why blockchain couldn't be part of a technology solution to solve for that. But like you said, the existing landscape, the incumbent structure is complex enough that it's still going to take some work. But I'm with you. I think that's a place where we could see major transformation. As we wrap up the show, Rob, I want to give a chance for you to leave some key messages with the audience. And also, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Okay, so lessons learned. Collaboration is essential. You got to get a tone of collaboration. There's enough debate over you know, what is real and how to represent these transactions. You need a group of advisors that want to collaborate together and not debate. And that tone must be set by the leadership of the organization, right? It's got to be set by the entrepreneur. And while it feels like it could be a lot of people around a table or around the Zoom at one time, if you can inspire an effective conversation with all the lenses at one time, incredible efficiencies and quality comes out of that collaboration. So getting, getting all the competencies represented and working together. The other thing I'd say is it's hard enough. This stuff is so difficult and new innovations coming out every day. I know some people, technicians in tax, they want to develop these you know, fantastic arguments and they sound really great on paper, but I really encourage everybody, like, keep it simple. <laughs> Don't get fancy because it's hard enough to figure out what you think is the right answer, but engaging with a regulator over in, in a debate on this topic is, uh, it's hard. Right. And, and so I just stress to everybody, you know, keep it simple, stick with the stuff that, that is, is explainable. It is believable. Uh, it's real. And, and then form your arguments and positions that way. And the last thing is, you know, people like me, people like myself, we love iterating through this space. You don't have to make everything a, a massive project on the front end. Just start a conversation. Enough of us have been doing this a long time. It's, it's, it's great. Make us part of the team. Allow us to iterate. You know, we have a, a great group. I am so fortunate to be able to lead the tax piece and Deloitte of all things blockchain and digital assets. And we have a great leadership team representing, you know, consulting and um, a, a lot of the regulatory constructs and auditing and fantastic team to engage as is needed. So feel free to ping me and I'm happy to uh, help you directly or put you in touch with somebody who can. Thanks, Rob. And one of my big takeaways, the quote from the day for me is tax is agile, or we have an agile way of thinking about tax. And it sounds like that's the modus operandi for you and the team. How can people find you? And what else have you got going on in your life? You know, great, Anthony. As much as I spend time um, with innovative technology topics, I'm, I'm pretty old school. <laughs> so, so email is, is easy, rmassey at Deloitte. Also, uh, I'm pr fairly active on LinkedIn. You can find me. There's, there's not too many Rob Masseys out there and, and very few Rob Masseys in, in blockchain. And so those are probably the two easiest ways to find me. And happy to engage uh, however, however you like. 
You know, Anthony, I feel so fortunate to be a part of Deloitte because all these different competencies that I've been talking about, uh, it's great to be in one firm where we can really surround clients holistically in all the things they need. And and we show up and I and my partners who are super engaged in audits and controls and, you know, deep in the technology and the strategy and, and the regulatory aspects of this. It is a, it's just such a such an incredible pleasure in my career to be in one place where we can really wrap around a client, you know, holistically. And that, that's really the value that we bring. It, it frankly enables me to be a better provider in this space because I have, I have, you know, dedicated partners and we do act as partners as we advise clients to help do the right thing. And what else is keeping you busy, Rob? Oh my gosh, Anthony, I am so fortunate. I have two young daughters and a wonderful wife and everyone likes to sail. So we are out on San Francisco Bay as often as we can. I see no reason if I don't need to be sitting behind big screens, I see no reason to be on land. So we are out sailing in the bay as often as possible. That sounds like as good a way for social distancing as I can think of. (laughs) Rob, it's been a genuine pleasure to reconnect. Thank you so much for taking time to share your experience with the group. I hope that this has been interesting and has shone a light on something that I know most people are blindsided by on a regular basis. Thanks for coming on the show. Love to the friends and family and to all the guys over at Deloitte and have a great rest of your week. Thanks, Anthony. You're doing a great job with the podcast. Such a pleasure to be connected with you. And I so appreciate the insights that you bring to this industry. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.